0: Hello, this is Claire, and this is The Art of Life. I'm a living woman making a living voice, transmission, all rights reserved, None given Here we go. I'm going to talk today uh, about death and I wanted to talk about my own experience of death in relation to what's going on in the world, in relation to sovereignty and to natural law. And in relation to, as I, as I usually am doing in my podcasts or live voice transmissions, just opening the, the tight little boundaries that we have around these subjects that, that cause us great problems in the world, that stop us from experiencing the world as the ecstatic bliss and healthful, lifeful abundance of fulfilment and joy and expansion that that it should be. Um, and I've talked at, at length in past transmissions and in my writing and books and in my paintings, I've talked to the subject of birth a lot and in particular, natural, ecstatic, aligned birth, where a woman is in tune with her her own natural processes and the orgasmic reflex that allow a child to be born in ecstasy and without intervention and without unnecessary violence. And I'd like to talk about the end of life in that way also. Um, I'd like to just remove some of the veils. Um, the subject of of death is coming into the mainstream. There are some really amazing people. Specifically, Zach Bush <clears throat> has been talking recently about death and dying, and the fact that death is used sort of held over us as a as a um a form of torture essentially. That. The way it's presented to us, the way we're shamed out of discussing it and shamed into our own disconnection, shamed out of our sentience, there's a very complex entanglement there where we get systematically detached from our own body and our own sentient experience of life, which when we awaken all of that, when we come back into our body and de-armour our body and in particular wake up our pelvis and our rooted sentience where we're able to tap into the earth reach up into the sky and feel things like really feel what's going on around us when we're in that space we know what death is we're able to read death in a way like not interpret it as in locking it down into words and sentences and concepts but we're able to speak about it artistically, creatively, from our own unique, again, not standpoint, but living, moving, breathing interpretation of it. And that's really important. That's something that's been lost in the world where everything, everything is medicalized and institutionalised. So we don't even see see a dead body often. Children aren't allowed to go and visit a dead, bo- a dead person, or see them in the state of dying. Um, relatives stuff down emotions or get tangled up in the will and <laughs> arguing over money that's being left. Um, the person gets carted off into a conveyor belt system from the hospice to the funeral home in a hearse, in a box, in a, in a. A, a closed tight container um that then goes on a conveyor belt into a incendiary room or uh, or gets locked into the ground um in a big possibly done with a JCB, a digger of some sort, a mechanical digger of some sort, um locked into the ground in that way rather than being naturally placed in the ground. Um by the the blood, sweat and tears of the people who love the person. Um, There's lots of ways in which we get um, institutioned and medicalized out of the death process. So often a person will die in a coma, induced essentially by the, the intensive medication that they're on. And the basic concept is to lock that person too out of the actual experience that they're having, lock them out of their pain, lock them into stupor, lock them into numbness around the transition. And I, I would say that without going too deep into the agenda behind this, there is a huge amount, simply simply, there is a huge amount that is lost in our human be, human experience when we see death as an end, end point. And Zach Bush talks about this really really succinctly in how the very concept of our finishing a life means that seeing it as an end point, seeing it as a transactional, this is the end of a thing that had value and vitality and force flowing through it, but it's just a mechanical end point where it doesn't exist anymore and the body has no meaning or purpose. It's like It has to get burned or locked up somewhere or transformed into compost somehow but it doesn't have real meaning like we're not allowed to take the body and put it back to the earth in a meaningful beautiful natural ceremony we are but we have to really work and do our research and find out about how to do that and yeah there's a lot there's a lot of work in doing that so the gateway of death, um, when we're close to a person, um, I'm going to talk about my own experience of this and and also my own experience of death in myself um, with the, the sole intention of, of opening this discourse because I think that a lot of us have maybe never talked out loud about death and also a lot of us have perhaps being conditioned into holding grief in a particularly non-skilful way In I know in my own culture there's a a very prevalent habit of um, stoicism being stoic and saying oh everything will be fine oh everything will be good It's it's, it's okay, it's okay, I'll be fine, I'll be fine then getting stoked up on drugs and passing away in a coma. Um, like there's a lot that's lost in that, in that stuffing down of emotion, in the not to judge a person and the choices that they make at the same time. The lack of availability of choices is a very real thing. Um, and the presumption that we should go out of this life, like leave the life. In a very unconscious way is assumed to be the norm assumed to be the only way um, so yeah i've known i've known of a, a, a lot of people who've died and i've known quite a few people close to me who've died specifically through suicide Or recklessness, or through a process of methodical self destruction over a longer period. And I have current family in a state of um, finding their path with conventional medicine around a, a so-called terminal disease. Um, I, I heard recently that there's a, a very strong t- statistic around having your disease labelled and dying much more quickly. That, that's such an amazing concept because, again, it's about the, the definitiveness, the, the definition, something being brought into the physical very strongly and working around this concept of our feeling our our finite physical existence. Um, so, I have a I've always had a sense that the crossover period within my own mind, body, spirit, and my own experience of my life, and possibly close to death experiences that I've had. I've had a sense of it being something that can be like a terrible tension and a terrible resisting force. Um, and I've also had a feeling of it being an ecstatic going into another dimension, another dimension that's much friendlier and, and less um, horrifically traumatizing than life on planet earth in this, in this um, current phase of its evolution. Um, so I know that there's a, a polemic there, I know that there's an extreme, just from my own life experience, from being a child and having some very near accidents, and um, also from having the experience of leaving my body and knowing what it is to leave my body, leave it almost unconditionally, like leave it with the intention of not coming back. And then turning around and coming back to it. So I I know that there's some kind of um, fluidity there, and that there is something much more immense, (laughs) much more immense. That sounds like a bit, I think that's an oxymoron. Um, But there's a a far more expansive reality beyond this life experience and beyond the the seeming limits of being supposedly firmly fixed into a physical body. Um, I sat with my mum my on her dying bed. Um, my relationship with my mum was very difficult. Um, she was a, a very heavy drinker. We had a lot of mess in our childhood of going from home to home, parents fighting, a lot of violence. Parents with different partners, a lot of mess, going in and out of different houses and um, trying to find our home. Um, And then my mum moved when we were in our early mid-teens to Canada, to the other side of the world from Scotland. And that was extremely disturbing to to my relationship with her. And over the years, I, it was hard to reground that. But the point at which um, she was diagnosed with, a again, a so-called terminal disease diagnosis. Um, she called for my help and I immediately dove into that very fully and eventually moved over there to take care of her physically in 24 hours. <clears throat> 24 hours a day, I mean. So... That disconnection and that childhood distortion that we'd had, that I'd had, with my mum. There was a, a period of taking care of her and helping put her life to, into order before she passed. At the same time as caring for her, trying to bring her through Gerson therapy and into a, a lucid state. She was in a very um, non-lucid state. And she had been through a series of radiation um, treatments and so on. And when I brought her, eventually got her lucid enough and got her house sold and got everything organised with her, her putting her her business and life in order. Um, got her lucid enough to travel Um, with the intention of hitting the ground running and having a, a really intensive, uh, like stepping up the Gerson therapy regime, as it were, and going into, she'd made amazing progress from being in a morphine coma and being told that she would effectively be dying in the next days to two months later being fairly bright and... Still quite confused, her, her so-called cancer was very extensively interwoven in many parts of her body and in her blood and her brain. But she had made incredible progress in the short time on the on the quasi-Gerson therapy that we'd progressed with, the uh, intensive organic juicing, um, very specific dark, dark red soup and um, coffee enemas there had been an incredible change in her in her um, basically she before she was in a morphine coma and sitting with a basket of drugs by her bed and just popping popping them in her mouth in the brief moments that she was awake but not really awake and she just sat in a sort of sat sat in a hunched sleepy stupor all day long and eventually was horizontal and and sort of not not making any sense and and um, she certainly would have continued in that direction if i hadn't intervened and in many ways i, I felt like i felt profoundly torn and do i intervene do i let this person keep choosing the path that they've chosen to Finish in this way, to finish in a morphine coma, to finish completely disconnected from her family, disconnected from me too. Uh, even I hadn't seen her for many years and I was there by her bedside and we'd had a very difficult relationship. There was a lot of unresolved pain between us, um, probably more so on my part, but yeah, a lot that hadn't been, hadn't had time to, to work itself. But ultimately I, I had been the person that she called and she had called even though she got tangled up with the hospital and treatments and being told that you have to do this or you're going to die immediately. So um, essentially I was answering that call as her daughter no matter what, even though we'd barely seen each other in 20 years. Um, it was my job to, to answer that genuine call she'd made when she was much more lucid and try and help her maintain dignity and clarity and just be conscious of what she was doing, conscious of where she was going. Um, And that eventually led to, as I said, hitting the ground running when we got back to Scotland and having my flat set up at the time in Edinburgh with a Gerson juicer a very specific uh, Norwalk juicer to help um get into the get into the therapy really completely and we we organized for a a Gerson therapist to come uh, a practitioner to come and actually guide us through the process and help create a specific plan for my mum who is really exhausted from traveling um, and, and quite disoriented and, and um, yeah, very confused about everything that was going on. Um, but in that brief period, my mum decided, in as much as she could decide, um, she was actually mostly agreeing wholeheartedly with anything that you put to her. So if you put two different opposing views to her, she would basically say, yes, yes, that's fantastic I would love that um to basically everything you said to her um and at the time other members of my family decided that that meant that she should go to a hospice that she really wanted to go to a hospice but I think it was more really that the question had been presented as do you want to just go to the hospice yes yes of course and um, and so on but anyway there was a a sense of her making a decision and that process of her being in a place where she could eat pudding and <laughs> and be fussed around and like get treatment that was going to take her into her final moments in a a familiar discomfort way rather than in a, an, un, an unfamiliar discomfort that would be leading her towards more lucidity and more health and wellness. Um, yeah, it was a great, a great learning experience for my... When I say great, I mean, I don't mean great, fantastic. I mean, great with a capital G, a greatly significant... He, Um, learning process for myself to understand a person's choice within this life that even if they want to make deeper more lucid choices the accumulation of how they got to be in the state that they're in can't necessarily be turned around. It needs the strength of their will behind them and also it, it needs enormous physical mental and emotional effort by themselves and by assistance people around them actually supporting them and the the much excuse me the much 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 easier path is the path that is already laid out the lovely tarmac adam road in front of you that you know like why would you go traipsing off or, across a field and exercise your bones and Breathe deeply into the air when there's a nice little minibus waiting for you or an ambulance waiting for you that's going to take you down the nice little Tarmacadam, tarmacadam road uh, to the hospice where you can eat pudding. And yeah, you'll have like much fewer days left, but you'll be you'll be leaving with a smile on your face in a morphine coma again, back to the morphine coma. um, And... And that's that. I had a sense uh, when my mum was passing of her energy dissipating. I I felt at a certain moment when I was holding her hand uh, in a quiet moment in her little private room because she was going into her final phase, as it were. Um, I had a real sense of it being all a theatre and that she was playing this role that had already been decided by the system and by the medications and by her deciding that she didn't want to feel pain, that all of her life she'd been moving towards this, all her life she hadn't dealt with her childhood abuse and challenges. She hasn't dealt with the trauma of divorce and moving away from the country and abandoning her children. She sort of hadn't de- dealt with anything. She'd just sort of ridden it, ridden it, like ridden the horse really hard when the horse was tired as it were like her own body she'd just like pushed and pushed and she was always heading that direction very rapidly she died at the age of 57 um, and I had this sense too that she she literally dissipated like she had already left in many ways she'd alre- her what was her what was her vital force Her intelligence, her sentience had already been numbed and dissipated um, through alcoholism, through medication, through pushing through it, through riding it hard, riding life hard, rather than listening, just listening. Um, And... I had this real, very real sense holding her hand when she was in her last days and her last breaths and getting a little sponge and moistening her mouth and making sure she had some liquid going into her body um, and that her mouth wasn't drying up through her breathing and just watching her there and knowing everything that we'd experienced in our life together, knowing that I'd come from her, seeing her body so vulnerable seeing her face so haggard and so looking like a woman 20 years older than she actually was. It was an incredible um, transmission of this can be you, this is what you can choose. In so many ways, it, it's so easy to follow the path of our parents because it's already been done once and we've seen it and it's, again, it's this tarmacadon path, this asphalt path Uh, road which is all prepared and there's even a minibus waiting for us (laughs) rather than having to carve out, hack out a, a path in the jungle or interact with nature, like it's so easy to just get on that get on a bandwagon and be trundled along by the force, a force outside of us that we sort of trust to take care of us um yeah there's not a lot of power and there's not a lot a lot of responsibility in that and there was something in my mum's passing that i felt in my hands holding her hands in her last days i felt her dissipating but i also knew that she had dissipated all these years before i mean the the last time i'd seen her many many years before at my granddad's funeral um had been I'd been really shocked by the state of her. She would have been um, gosh, she would have been the age that I am now, possibly at that point, ten years before or something. Or at least five or eight, eight, seven years ago before or something. That chronological gets a bit confusing when there's all these deep, dark experiences in our life. Um but I was so shocked by the how bent over she was, how how vacant she looked and how um, unpresent she was. And I knew that there had been a great dissipation already that she had already left herself. And that dissipation, I had this very profound sense in holding her hand at the end that she was at, I had a very, a moment where i was completely overwhelmed my brothers were in the room too and i didn't say anything to them but had this complete overwhelm of my fully sentient body feeling her literally literally turning into nothing like literally going back in her her consciousness going back into the universe and being recycled as it were and it really it really frightened me really frightened me um because it made me feel like that there was something finite about this life that I hadn't felt that before but I think it was a really important learning in terms of I have had many other experiences being close to people who've died and there wasn't that and I've had moments of being as I've mentioned outside of my own body and and there wasn't that sense of that being so Uh, coming back to the world situation as it exists today, right now, and this very heavy agenda to push the medicalization of all life and the way citizens are being conditioned to be good citizens, as it were, in inverted commas, with small g and a small c, In policing each other again with in inverted commas policing with a small p. Uh, into submitting, like really coerced submission, into being medicalized, into every aspect of life being medicalized, into even being plugged into the matrix fully by being reg regularly um, topped up with a, some kind of jab or. Um, test or swab or extremely intrusive and ex- extremely dubious um, testing processes, like just beyond a dubious, dubious with the most capital sacred D <laughs> that I can muster in this living voice right now. Um, that, that immense pressure that goes against us all is certainly, almost certainly, Consciously and unconsciously pulling us into death as a finite point. Death as an inconvenience. Death as a as a, a point where your useless bag of flesh and blo- bones and blood is defunct and conked out and gets flung down the waste chutes. I have, a, I have a very different sense of of that, of that self-destructive handing over of our sovereignty, handing over of our, our, our very vitality and the thing that makes us what we are. The very beautiful connectedness and feeling, like actually having feeling, wide awake feeling of what's going on around us, this living, breathing, sentient, interbeing with all things at all times um, I feel <clears throat> excuse me I was going to say I, I feel really strongly but actually um, it's really hard to explain what I feel I, I, about death i I know that there's a more natural way of dying. I know that pain has a purpose. I know that pain also has a transcendent purpose, that when we can transcend pain, not climbing up over it and floating off into the sky about it, but... I'm just unlocking my phone because it, it stops. Uh, the screen goes dark and stops. Um... It interferes, goes to sleep by itself. I I know that the, the more I awake my own consciousness, I'm not talking about being woke in this cliched, ridiculous, tangled up with conspiracy concept. I'm talking about being awake in a very real sense of Having a, an awoken cervix, a, a de armored womb, uh, a de armored pelvis, uh, a very strong, loving relationship with my and interrelationship with my own mind, body, and spirit, and, and knowing the truth of health, how the body naturally gravitates towards health and life, and how it, it also has a role, a role, an actual role that is limitless that doesn't have a boundary in this life. And that role is the interbeingness in the living eternal moment with all things. And that interrelationship with all things in the eternal now being harmonious, fluid, symbiotic, mutually beneficial and greater than the sum of the parts, much greater than the sum of the parts. <clears throat> I think that the I know that the continued mechanization of all things, including the medicalization of death and the medicalization of the transition, especially the biggest transitional gateways that we go through in our life when we're conceived, when we're born, when we become adults, when we make love, when we birth ourselves and when we die, these are are gateways that can and should be ecstatic, primarily, fundamentally should be ecstatic, and should be like enormously powerful unlocking of pressure points in a a large-scale planetary consciousness. But instead, we become these little deadened numb points which if you know anything about shiatsu or acupressure, acupuncture, but if you've actually practiced that on yourself and your body, you'll know the difference between a point that's devoid of energy that needs filled up and the point that has too much energy that needs the energy energy dissipated. You might feel it actually as a, if not a lump, then just a, a tender area in under your skin, in your muscle, in your flesh. You'll feel a point which is like a a little depression that needs filled that's empty and you'll feel a kind of coolness or emptiness about it and then you'll feel a point that needs the energy needs to be moved it needs to be it's built up too much and it's like hot and um, tight and um, I feel that in the microcosm of the body and the macrocosm of the planet and the universe there's something about that where we're all either vibrant beating pulsing life or we're not we're either life that's moving or we're life that's stagnant and yes we all are dealt different blessings shall we say different cards different blessings in our entering the world and some of us struggle with health some of us struggle with physical challenges or mental challenges, or challenges of. Well, I think there's few people in the world who aren't struggling away financially right now. Um, whatever the construct puts in the way. Of us, we always have the potential in our own lives. To potentialize to become so much more than we were, so much more of the sum of our than the sum of our experiences and so much more activated. We have the power to follow the matrix, follow the construct, accept what's given to us and and have trust in that, that is perhaps a very misplaced trust. Or we have the power to really put down our taproot,
1: really breathe
0: into our full length and breadth and width and height, and really open our eyes wide and open our ears wide and open our our breath wide and all our senses, all our orifices wide and listen and feel what is really going on around us. We have a a potential to live our life with a capital L or to, to live it with a small L and that ultimately will... Dictate or liberate how we die. Um, I had a, a very strong physical experience with one of my oldest friends who had grown up with his, his mum and dad, had been friendly with my mum and dad on the island the generation that moved there in the 70s and wanted to live off the land and live the good life and and be all happy hippies, but instead ended up sort of going into dark spaces and bringing their children up pretty, pretty roughly. Um I <coughs> um, This friend uh, I knew, particularly through high school, when we had this sort of wild relationship and he would hitchhike, he would walk all the way down the the forest track from his house way off the forest road in the south end of the island, walk four miles to the main road and hitch, weren't many cars going by, (laughs) hitch all the way to the north end of the island and up our track to, to visit me on the mountainside. He would turn up unexpectedly. Um, and it would take him hours <laughs> to do that. So he was a really ded- dedicated, beautiful love that, that really wanted to delve in deep with me. I was a, a deeply um, inverted, um, angry-with-the-world teenager who repeatedly pushed him away and, and didn't want to get deep into a relationship just wanted to keep everything at a distance and to sort of be safe in inverted commas. um, We met once on the mainland when I was at art school and him and a bunch of other school friends turned up at my house and tapped on my bedroom window in the middle of the night and <laughs> and they all piled in to have a cup of tea. I don't know what on earth they were doing. But yeah, that was all a bit... Um, bizarre and then years later m- many years later when I was in my um, mid or late 20s uh, when I was living up in the, near the spiritual foundation uh, of Fintorn in the northeast of Scotland um, he we got in touch with each other and he had this plan to go and live in South America so he was doing the rounds in Scotland and went back to the island to connect with family and friends and And my family too, because we'd all been quite close. And then he came up to the north uh, to visit me, all the way up to the north of Scotland. And we had this very brief, um, intense fling. And there was something extremely powerful that happened when we made love, that I felt this ice, like actual ice inside my body. I felt in my womb, ice like the coldness that I just I could never explain. I've never had anything like that happen before. But I had a very clear, definitive message from my womb that said, this man is going to die very soon. And I, I can't even remember if I spoke to him about it. It was such a an intense meeting. It was such an intense experience. Um, he was leaving soon after he was just there for a couple of days and um i did travel down to see him in england again but it was just very dark energy and he slept on this really smelly mattress on the floor where the the water from the shower room came out along the sloping floorboards and sort of into the mattress and everything was sort of damp and horrible and, and um bless him and he had this energy about him that as children he'd had this innocence and then as an adult he had this really aggressive hardness that had grown in him. Um. As I had, I had all this trauma I was trying to work through and um, I'd had this this big sort of spiritual breakdown, breakthrough that I was trying to um get to the other side of, I was trying to learn what self-care was, I was trying to um, deal with my <clears throat> neuroses and find stability in the world um, and yeah we really clashed at that time he was very hard-nosed he's been dealing drugs uh, in rural and uh, urban south east England uh, very intense energy there very a lot of really aggressive masculine energy a lot of real conflict with police and the system, and so on. And um, we had some discussions about death, so I'm pretty sure we, we must have discussed the fact that I felt this ice inside of me, after we'd made love. And um, we, he had this. He'd had a lot of really powerful spiritual experiences, <clears throat> uh, including a relationship with a shamanic woman in the Amazonian jungle in South America which was was where he was planning to go back to and similarly to how he'd been really in love with me as, as a teenager he was absolutely in love with her even though he didn't speak Spanish and he said that they'd had this beautiful you know just mingling of energy and profound soul connection which I thought was absolutely beautiful and made a lot of sense. And so we had these, like, we, he had this intimate, sensitive side to him, but he also had this really hardcore, like, being in the manic force, being in the manic, the manic state of uh, avoidance, uh, using substance and alcohol and really loud, intensely techno music hardcore techno music and crashing about and making a mess to avoid what was obviously going on inside him and I think in some ways we had this beautiful karmic reversal where he rejected me and and that gave him some satisfaction the, the way I'd rejected him when I was in my teens and um, I remember saying goodbye from to him for the last time and and he was saying, "Oh, I'll see you in another 10 years." And I was saying, "No, Ben, I don't think we'll see each other again." And he was saying, "Oh, don't be silly, don't be silly." And, and um yeah, it wasn't much later, but he he passed away in an accident on his motorbike, which was very,, oh, very predictable. It had a a problem with the steering and went round a roundabout on a wet night. The steering locked and he couldn't slow down and went into the front of a car, um, a young couple. Deeply traumatised, I imagine. Um, we'd had these discussions the last time I'd seen him where he'd had the, he had this cockiness about, like he'd had a lot of near-death experiences and he had this real um, cockiness specifically around some kind of psychic reading he'd had by a, a guy that had read his aura and told him that he had this really special aura that he 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 left his body many times um through like ex- ex- excessive use of drugs and and substances and and he he's left his body, but there's something above that's kind of protecting him like a shield that like knocked him back down into his body. And he'd even talked about a couple of near-death experiences. But he had this real, oh gosh, this real arrogance around, oh, but I'm not gonna die because I'm like invincible, because blah blah blah, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of thing that boys in their twenties in particular are are profoundly committed to the idea of their own immortality and that they can push to the edges of their life um, and, and somehow they'll I'm just trying to think what it is like if they think they're protected by some force or they think that they're so strong inside themselves so you know the idea of invincibility the the hormonal the hormonal trick that says you know i can go out there and have a knife fight or i can rage my my motorbike down the road at a really intense speed and nature will never intervene you know the room. uh a mechanical failure will never happen or i will never aquaplane on the water on a on a wet night like just this idea that somehow we can override um, nature, override consequence, override our symbiotic relationship with all things that we can <clears throat> just crash through it and power through it, which I think in, in some ways to me, in my understanding, relates also to like what we're doing with medical intervention, overriding and and pushing. Uh, After Ben's death, I I had at least one dream that was really particular before I knew that he was dead, where it took a while for the news to reach up through the networks and then my brother to let me know. Um, But I had a couple of nights that I didn't know he was dead, and he was dead, and I had a very strong, lucid dream. I'd been dreaming about him because I'd been with him um, recently, so it wasn't unusual to dream about him. But I had a very specific dream about being in a place with him which was like a place of healing, a place where he was going to get fixed. And um, and there was a big hole in the ground and he was laughing and being very frivolous and being very a little bit arrogant, but also very like naive and childish about where he was. And he was saying to me that, that, oh, this is great. You can just like kill yourself and then get, get, uh, get born again. Or, you know, like you can make a big mess and then it'll just get fixed. It's great. This place is great. And I was saying, um, actually you do, you do realize that this is you going now that, that you're, you finished that cycle. I think he thought he was going to get back into his own body or something. Um, and um, I, my job was to tell him that he was there to heal or something like that. But then there was this big hole and he was had this thing about like, oh, I'm just going to jump down this really big, deep hole, this really big, deep, dark hole. And I was like, oh, are you sure you know what you're doing, Ben? And, and, and then he was just like lost down this hole or something. Um, and I, I woke up from these dreams quite disturbed and I felt these hands pulling me, like literally pulling me. And it really frightened me. It was really it's really similar to when I was holding on to my mum when she was dying. And um <clears throat> first of all, the sense that she was dissipating, but also that she was trying to take me with her in some way, that I was somehow entangled with her, and that was being I was being pulled into dissipation with her. And similarly with this, like there was something about the, the child bond that we had. Um that I was being pulled out of my body and I, I could have just like let go and gone with that. Um, But I, I certainly resisted it and was quite spooked and couldn't sleep for a long time after that. was really scared about sleeping and wanted to leave a lamp on so that I, I wouldn't have the dark sort of envelop me and, and have spirits come and pull me out of my body. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah... The fact of sort of crashing blindly and into death like that, in a, from that place of, if not arrogance, then maybe foolhardiness. I feel that in in many ways, what's happening right now on the planet is a lot of people are being lured into that sort of game with their own with their own life. Um, because of what's being presented as where the danger might be and where the trust should be there's some kind of a strange distortion going on there and of course it's it's for all of us to decide what goes in our body and to guard the gates of our senses and to know what life is and to know what death is and can be and to know what life is and what life can be <clears throat> but on the whole, most of us are accepting a direly dumbed-down version of what health should be, what life should be, what death can be. And part of that crashing into it is the, the giving away of our power and our responsibility in it. And... Um, I think with my mother, I had such a strong sense of resentment around her dying that she, she wasn't living her karma. She wasn't, not that she needed to be punishment, punished for how she'd mothered us or not mothered us, but there was some sense of something having to be balanced that wasn't happening like the karmic balance wasn't happening at that time and um, I certainly did my part to try and bring the balance into it but also afterwards felt I don't even know like guilt and shame are just they're like really simple words that don't really cover the, the deep sense of just frustrated disconnect that I felt around trying to connect with my mum and helping her make sense of her life, helping her have a dignified de- death, helping her retain, regain sentience, regain lucidity. Um... my grief wasn't so much in her death like her death was just a natural or a, an unnatural consequence of her having chosen at the end of her life to go that direction and take the pharmaceutical approach and the hospice approach and the letting go into trust in the system approach and that that was absolutely you know that's her choice that was absolutely the right thing for her in that moment but i was so frustrated that after not seeing her all these years that something couldn't be couldn't have been salvaged um and that at the end of the day she'd already left in so many ways and unlike with ben there is You know, I I was like, why aren't we all just working to come back to our innocence and come back to our sentience and connection and our interbeing and our our woven stories that were so beautiful and that that could have been so much more beautiful and could be beautiful right now. Um, Yeah, the hardness of the edges that people grow around themselves and the... the um what's it called like the in the non uh, malleability of that like the absoluteness of that the absolute rigidity and definition of this is my life I'm a human this is what I'm living um the the deeply wound coil of the fear, tension, pain and the avoidance of like the the deep numbing of the soul and rigidity of our path in order to not be in the deep living sentience to actually be somewhere else altogether which has got nothing to do with this moment um, and, and the avoiding of the sentience, the avoiding of the real feeling Um yeah, these are, these are really powerful ways of avoiding what what death might actually be. And um, I had this experience two days ago where my, my beautiful cat Pishak passed away. And again, I, I felt all this, the weight of... When he was younger, he was this stray that I found, um, that I heard his call for help... <laughs> And he'd been abandoned by his mum and he would have just died. His little mew was getting more and more faded over a couple of days. And eventually I I went and put water and food, me and another neighbour. And we fed him a few days and eventually, very slowly, he was absolutely terrified and alone and flea-ridden and dirty and everything and stinky but eventually I got a big pair of gloves and lured him out with a bit of meat out of the, the wee medieval cat flap hole in the abandoned house he was in. And he was like all waving claws and legs and flapping tail and, and wailing, wailing and screeching. I managed to get him into my bathroom and soaked him up and cleaned him off and everything. And Yeah, he lived with me for three years he really bonded with Benjamino, and it was an amazing, he had an amazing life, but he was always very problematic, he had respiratory problems, was very, very skinny, had a great appetite, was very sweet, um, but had very little stamina. He was obviously abandoned with really good reason by his mum, but he had called to me and he said that he wanted to live. He was calling for life and <clears throat> as sentimental as it might be interpreted, that felt like a, a really important connection and And his his living with me, it's really hard work to have a, a sort of, um, severely compromised cat in the house. And you know I've taken on too many strays in the last couple of years, and and it does create all kinds of difficult dynamics. And especially Pishak had, um, problems with diarrhea, and then at the end of his life recently, had really like really bad incontinence that was like. Oh God, um, you know it was it's really something to have the house cleaned top to toe to after all that and all the cushions sterilized and by washing in hot water and so on. Anyway, the point being, um, early in his life, uh, my partner had said to me, that oh we should give him we should get him some antibiotics or we should do this or we'd do that and and I was really dubious about it at, at the time and i was dealing with other things and other cats at the time so i said look i i really don't want to give him pharmaceutical stuff because it it really doesn't treat the root of the problem and i've got a feeling that he's got a like a very um problematic constitution and that really if you just if you do something at one part for one part of him it's just going to have a knock on effect in another part and sure enough my partner went and brought some antibiotics and it just had a disastrous effect it made him much much sicker Straight away, which is pretty much how I, how, how I uh, react to pharmaceuticals. When you have an intact system, you, you just reject anything that isn't working with that system, like that natural hierarchy and the natural um, intact immune system and digestive system and interacting <laughs> aspects of self. You know, when you start to treat one aspect, it has a knock on effect, very negative effect on other aspects if you're not looking at the whole. So um we had tried that in fact I think we tried a couple of times and I was really reluctant to give him anything but we did try and it had really horrible if- side effects on him and it didn't treat the actual problem it made the problem worse so <clears throat> over the, the three years or almost four years no three years I think um we had him I had him Um, In the last year in particular, I started treating him homeopathically and he made some really interesting progress. In fact, the last month, I think we got him on a particular remedy that was, or I got him on a particular remedy with the help of some guys on an online uh, group about homeopathy for animals. Um, Got him on a a particular remedy that really supported, you know, it didn't make him 100% perky again, but it really gave him, he had, his stamina came back. He started to speak for the first time. He had this real like, instead of meowing. And then he suddenly had this like really strong call. Like he was going out. He seemed like he was in calorie, uh, in in heat. And he was looking for a partner. And so much so that he actually jumped off my balcony, which I thought, oh my God, he's going to break his legs because he's so frail. But he just was was away trotting, (laughs) trotting off down the street. Absolutely um, full of himself and a way off to sit in a sunbeam and play with his brother Benjamino and <clears throat> his adopted brother Benjamino and to hang out in the garden with the neighbours and get Coccolato, get a cuddle from them. And he was just fine, just doing, leaving his puddles of diarrhoea up and down the street, but he was fine. And um, he, he really seemed to rally and he was really communicative. He's such a loving cat, so beautiful. But that week in particular, he was just really communicative. And then just in two days, just boom, 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 very methodically, very simply, just left. And that was him. And, and it was such a strange thing, because I was saying to the neighbours that, like, gosh, she was so full of life, and he's so, like, so he just, he'd re-found re himself re um, reprendendo like eh, just come into himself a bit like come into his own I think we say <clears throat> and I just felt like oh thank goodness I've got the right remedy and this is like oh this is it he's going to get really well now and he's going to have a long life and be a big vibrant strong cat maybe he'll put on weight maybe he'll stop having diarrhoea um, but instead no he, he just really went it's like in one aspect of him really lived itself to the full like blossomed but he had a point in his life where he was at the end of his life and that was that and I really I really trust in that process with the homeopathy that it allows us to be exactly the fullness of what we are like for Pishak just to be absolutely Pishak Um, Pishak is the the Scottish Gaelic word for kitten he was always a bit of a a little frail kitteny cat is in an an adult cat body, but more like a little kitten really that hadn't got his power to go out on his own in the world yet. He would want me to he would want me to accompany him accompany him all the way up and down the street. Ah oh, bless, so beautiful. And he would want to just sit next to me all the time. He just wanted to sit behind me. He didn't like to sit on my, my knees. He just wanted to sit behind me in the in the chair, like a wee cushion cat. But yeah, his passing it, feels really really significant that his passing you know I didn't interfere I didn't take him to the vet to have an injection put in him I didn't try and lessen his pain and I know that's a really controversial subject in our in our medicalized consciousness but I just tried to be with him and listen to him and do anything that he needed in his last moments, covered him with a wee blanket, <clears throat> a wee jumper, Um, tried to get some water in his mouth, bathed his little mouth, bathed his, bathed his wee face, like well, just stroked his wee head, but he mostly just wanted, he wanted to be acknowledged, he wanted to be witnessed, but he didn't want to be Cocolatto didn't want to be fussed or petted or anything. He just wanted to be every now and again. He would call, and I would go and sit with him for a wee moment, and then I had him wrapped in a blanket on my lap, and then he sort of wanted his, he wanted to stretch his body out, so let him do that. And then, um, and he very slowly passed, very slowly passed with his eyes open, and very slowly, you know, and I was really wishing for it to end and saying, please God, you know, don't make him suffer. But he just passed naturally on his own and there was a process to it, there was something that was pure and beautiful about it, that not for my own enjoyment of it being pure and beautiful, but for the fact that it simply is and was, and that he'd lived his life and he would have died when he was a wee kitty, but he'd called for a wee special life and he'd had this really blessed life, he'd eaten lots of nice sausages and lots of nice fish and He'd had a wee cuddle. Would sat next to the fire. He would sit with his face right up on the stove, warming his face. He was probably quite chilly because he's so skinny, in the middle of winter, and he'd had amazing, really beautiful moments with his his adopted brother Benjamino. So there was something really pure about his life, and the fact that I didn't intervene medically in him, that I just used homeopathy to, <clears throat> um, support him to be more of what he already was. Um, Yeah, it was really, really powerful. Like, even the moments of him passing and how it happened just as... just as I was allowing, like, dealing with it myself and letting go of it myself. Something that's happened with a couple of cats that I've been with when they've passed... um, I felt this really strong sense of them having absorbed lots of stuff from the human in the house, me, and that it was all being released just before their death. Like all this emotion was being released and from myself too, but like somehow they were charged up with the emotion and then they were letting go of it before they passed. And something that's so honourable and so beautiful about them passing and in their own time, in their own way and without interference. And the wrapping of his wee body. Um, the the taking of him, carrying of him down into the garden and put, putting of him into the earth and putting little flowers over him. Giving him a nice little spot. You know, just giving him, him the dignity of returning to the earth and putting some beautiful big stones, big lovely marble stones on top of him. Um, on top of the soil, on top of his wee body, that would be safe and sheltered under there. Um, just it just feels right, and and okay, and natural, and and special and meaningful. <clears throat> And the, the ritual cleaning of the house during his, his death process where he'd gone through quite a messy phase of leaving leaving puddles of himself, bless him, um, around the house and on cushions and the, the cleaning process of that whilst he was doing his little dying ritual. It was really, really... It was really, really... And... It was an honour to serve him and to care for him and to just be with him, being who he was. And, um, and that in itself helps me <clears throat> untangle my own relationship with death that I've had through people close to me who've died, through my mummy especially. Um, it just helps me come at it with a fresh presence and humility that I I realised how entangled I was and even now through the death of wee Pishak I can look back on my relationship with my mum and and something lessens in the tension in it because of the honour of having sat with Pishak through his leaving So, yeah, yeah, there's something, I was talking with a really good friend uh, just now about death and about the sense of completion and fulfilment that should come at the end of a person's life, that should then sort of power their transcending or power their transmission on their their parting and their transition into being something else, the transition of their beingness. Um, I think it's very much about the space that's being held. And I think there's something about the potential of birth and death to be an activation, to be not a leaping springboard or anything, but just to be something more than than what it appears on the outside, something more than what science is telling us, something more than what our fear and grief and um, compromised physical human experience might be telling us. I certainly think that the collective story around death as end point, certainly like Zach Bush and like many other people are saying right now, um, it certainly is a very uh, limited, simplified version of reality that could be getting in the way of us having death be a liberating force for us. Um, not as in a transactional or polemic like life was a prison and we're getting free from it or the physical body is a, a, a hardship and we're escaping it but the whole the wholeness of our life, the wholeness of who we are and who we were and what we've lived and the wholeness of how we've fulfilled our purpose and what our purpose really is not just in in terms of a a job or a family member or a partner or a a privileged white person in a Western so-called western country on planet earth but Our meaningfulness from our viewpoint as the centre of the universe in this lifetime that has seemed to be rooted in this particular physical body and this particular moment and this particular um, trajectory, The, the transcendental meaningfulness of that, the expansive consciousness of that, the interbeing, the... the the deep symbiosis of our living experience as so much more than just finishing where our feet touch the ground and where our hand touches the wall and where our head touches our jacket hood or our hat. Um, As I go through these processes of understanding natural law, understanding real holistic health, understanding health in practice in my own body, having been a person who was not healthy in my earlier life. Um, I'm understanding more and more settling into my own existence, my own unique gateway into life into the great mystery of it, that the, the great mystery that almost feels like a, an emptiness, the great spirit of all things, it feels like an emptiness, but it also is a kind of immense peace that we can't know through our tension and our worrying about the years ticking by and our fear of life ending, in inverted commas, um, the fear, tension, pain, dynamic, turned on its head into the relaxed, lucid, spiralling upwards of expansiveness, pleasure and fulfilment. They don't counter or deny the existence of moments of fear, moments of tension and moments of pain. But if we're entering that corkscrew of tension, fear and pain At its ultimate end point, the ultimate suppression of our life force, the ultimate suppression of our consciousness, the ultimate destruction of our our beingness and denial of our integral spiritual self, if we meet life in that profoundly skewed, tightened, corkscrew descent into compaction, then of course it's going to be a different transcending of the boundary of life than that of this. Again, I'm not trying to talk about like a hierarchy or right or wrong. I'm just talking about difference, like the difference between, and perhaps even the difference of choice between descending into the darkness or rising into the light. It's not as simple as that. And we can't ever avoid blood, sweat and tears of being a physical person in this lifetime. But there's something profoundly beautiful of the aspiration to be not only living this life fully as it should be lived, as it wants to be lived through us, as the universe calls us to and works with us and responds to us doing, being, But also, there is something that the engine of life, where it is trying to take us to, like, what is the purpose of life? What are we moving on to through this life? What was the life charging up? What was it activating? Why is there agenda to stop us getting activated? (laughs) Why Why is everything working so hard to keep us from knowing our true self and knowing our immense capacity to heal? and to transcend and to be fully alive and fully in our indigenous self, in our true natural self? Why is there such a huge um, effortful effort and forcefulness against that, like specifically trying to undermine that? What might be there beyond the edges of that? extensive, effortful pressure to keep a lid on life. What might be there if we removed that lid completely, allowed it to dissolve away by our, our very innate life force that wants to know itself and express itself? What would, what would be there? I have, a, I have a very strong knowing in me that it's something much greater than the sum of the parts and that That's all I can really understand from here. Um, I can dip a toe into it. I can have an ecstatic moment sense of it, laying in my bed, feeling my way into Gaia Sophia and letting Gaia Sophia move through my body, like move fully through my body and inform me energetically what's really going on here. Um, But we can't really know until we leap, uh, leap into the... into the mystery at the end of life. um, I I just hold space for myself and others to be leaping and flying into that mystery um, rather than screaming and wailing in the trauma and pain of dying, perhaps, how we were traumatically born through the violence of modern medicine. So... Yes, I'm very interested where we go from here together. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, please do respond under this podcast or wherever you find it. Um, I'm just starting to explore how you synchronize Anchor. Dot FM and WordPress. Uh, not sure if I'm doing this well or right. I think I've done it back to front, but. I'm not really bothered I'm just putting the intention out there that this um my words and my intentions would go out out into the world a little bit more just rippling out a little bit more than they are doing just now um I've gone through a period of being heavily censored and locked out of many mainstream platforms so this is my way of just stepping back into them and fully living and breathing my voice out into the world as a a sovereign Um, uh, activated living woman and um, I, I look forward to talking further. Blessings and love and expansion on your day. May these moments be the really powerful moments that they are supposed to be and may they be deeply meaningful for you and may your health be vibrant and true and full. I'm sending you love and transmitting all good things with this transmission. And if you'd like to support my work, <clears throat> my art and my life, um, please do go to my website, whatartisfor.com or cleargalloway.com C-L-A-R-E. And um, yeah, you can support me there. I'm on Patreon. Um, you can even send me a, a Bitcoin donation or one of those other things that are to do with cryptocurrency. And I also have a profile on Buy Me a Coffee or a direct link to PayPal. If you would like to support me in another way and um, with a gift of financial support, that would be amazing. Uh, just contact me privately through my website or Patreon or something like that. <laughs> Whatever you find to contact me with. Blessings in love. Blessings in love. Blessings in love.